So you know, every, everywhere we look today, there are, are calls for justice. Social justice, racial justice, economic justice, and, and where you personally happen to fall on any number of cultural issues can brand you in the eyes of the world uh, as either a hero, a warrior, a, a victim, or, or a villain. Issues like, uh, you know, all the hot-button ones, gay marriage, abortion, animal rights, public welfare, the environment, immigration, law enforcement. And, and, and you can see battle lines are, are being laid out on, on Facebook feeds and, and Twitter streams that have really become a social war zone with, with articles and, and op-eds and news feeds being volleyed back and forth like hand grenades between various ideologies and factions. Uh, our major city streets have been turned into chaos. Politicians are hurrying to pick up sides, and all of it, all of it in, in the name of justice, of being on the, the right side of history for every race and, and class and political affiliation and, and gender who are all demanding to be given the justice that they feel that they deserve and are being denied. And most if not all of them, forgetting to ask if any of us really know what true justice is. Because, you know, if you think about it, really, how could we? Because none of us, not, not you, not me, not the, the protester on the street or the police officer patrolling a neighborhood or the crack addict or the Ivy League academic, we can't truly and completely step outside of our own heads and outside of our own hearts and look at our lives objectively. It's just not possible. Because regardless of our, our race or our background or our upbringing, we all have our own prejudices. We all have our own preferences. We all have our own personal likes and dislikes that we tell ourselves are right and are perfectly reasonable. And so all of us, every, every human being needs an objective, transcendent, sanctified standard from outside of ourselves to measure those things against and to show us where we really stand. And that's really a major theme of our psalm text today. Uh, two of them, actually, that I want to share with you, uh, that we're looking at Psalm 98 and 99, that lay out uh, the aspects of a God-centered justice and of its ultimate triumph over all of the injustices, both real and imagined, of this fallen world. And so uh, I hope you have your Bible with you. I encourage you to follow along. So remember, we're still in our expository series through the book of Psalms. We started at 1, and we're up to 98 and 99 this week. And so hear the words of the psalmist. He writes, So sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation, and he has made it known. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He's remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. I make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth, will judge the world with righteousness 
and the peoples with equity. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He's exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You've established equity. You've executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called on his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and statutes that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord, our God, is holy. Let's pray. God, our Father, we come before you today seeking the light of your word. And we ask, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit that you would breathe life into this message. We ask, Father, that you would uh, feed your children on the goodness of your word uh, and give your people ears to hear, Father, and hearts to receive all that you have for us today because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so if you remember, you know, we've been looking at this little cluster of psalms in kind of the bigger context, but we've been looking at 95 through 100 together because they were intentionally grouped together by the worship leaders of the Jewish temple into a really elaborate cantata for the people and the Levites to sing back and forth to each other, to, to sing in refrain with each other in worship, uh, and to do it to encourage and to spur each other on to a deeper devotion of our heavenly King, who is not only our Lord and Creator, but also the giver of a Sabbath rest and a perfect peace, and one that He promised to us in the Messiah. That Messiah who we're promised will restore a universal amity and, and righteousness and justice that's brought about not through the work of social activists uh, or through the opinions of the Hollywood elite or the humanist policies of world leaders, but only through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, and today, those, those two Psalms, 98 and 99, point us to those two truths again by calling us to recognize how holy God is and how perfectly his law and justice puts all of us, uh, all of humanity, on the same level playing field at the foot of his throne. You see, that's why the psalmist said, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. The Lord our God is holy. He's holy in all of his aspects. Uh, one commentator said on this, and I love this quote, he said, His justice is a holy justice. His wisdom is a holy wisdom. His arm of power, a holy arm. His promise, a holy promise. His righteousness in all of His ways. And He has holiness in all of His works. Indeed, holiness is the rule of all His acts and the source of His punishment. But you know, that's really a concept that we've almost lost in our postmodern, post-Christian world, isn't it? We're, we're, we've kind of become so politically correct that we're afraid to talk to anybody about almost anything except the weather, uh, and, and that's even an exception unless you know if the person's a climate change fanatic, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and much less speak out for the honor of God's reign and the righteousness of his laws and the holiness of his word. But brothers and sisters, that's where real justice comes from. Justice belongs to God. And, and we've really seen that in this 
whole little cluster of psalms that we've been looking at together. Remember way back in, in Psalm 96, 13, we read, He will judge the world with justice and the nations with His truth. In Psalm 97, we read, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. And, and today, uh, let them praise Your great and awesome name. Holy is He. The King in His might loves justice. You've established equity. You've executed justice and righteousness. And what that all means is when we seek after a holy God, one of his attributes that we're going to discover is his divine justice. And see, that's where our perspective of what justice is changes from my own personal perspectives and my own personal opinions and my own personal preferences and on to God's. Because that's the only thing that's ever going to straighten out this crooked world again is that's going to be a true understanding that justice is not measured by how much you can accomplish for this issue or, or for that cause. It's not going to be about how many signs you carry or, or your virtue signaling Facebook posts or your pithy bumper stickers. No, a true and unbiased understanding of justice begins when we measure ourselves not, not against someone else, but against the plumb line of sacred scripture. Uh, and see what we really look like in God's eyes. And find out just how far we all are off the mark. And then we'll be able to confess honestly in the words of Romans 3.10, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one. Not, not anyone. Not you. Not me. That's why the world as a whole and we as individuals should be really, really careful not to go around shaking our fists at heaven demanding justice because I can promise you, no one, especially me, really wants it. You know why? Because I know I'm a sinner. And unless you're really self-deceived, you know you are too. Uh, and the Bible plainly says that the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. That's justice for those that want it. That's God's original rule for the universe, spelled out uh, plainly all, all through the Scriptures, but uh, Ezekiel 18 puts it really succinctly. That it says the soul that sins, any sin, shall die. See, in the initial created order, all sin was deemed worthy of death. Every sin is a capital offense. And in the words of the late Dr. R.C. Sproul, he said, every sin is cosmic treason against a sovereign God. Every sin is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who created us and gave us the gift of life. And he says, because when we sin and disobey God in the slightest point, we are saying we are above your jurisdiction and that we have the right to do whatever we want to do and not what our Creator has commanded us to do. And caused another theologian to observe, and I love this one, he said that uh, the most mysterious aspect of our sin and of God's justice is not that the sinner deserves to die, but rather that the sinner in the average situation continues to live. And so see, the issue is not does God punish sin, but rather... Why does he permit our ongoing rebellion and our disrespect? Right? I mean, just think about it for a minute with me. What ruler or, or what boss or, or even what earthly father, since we're talking about Father's Day, do you know would ever do that? None that I know of. I, I've never had a boss or a, or a teacher who would have let me abuse them and disrespect them and ignore them. Uh, and I can, can tell you as a boss or as a parent, I would never put up with that. Right, kids? Where are my kids? Right? Uh, and, and honestly, I'd be willing to guess that not many of you would either. Uh, and we all pretty much get that, I think, right? That, that idea of like, 
of, of owing something to someone and them expecting it, whether it's, it's respect or, or honor or, or loyalty. What we're talking about is the idea of indebtedness and of obligation, just in the same way as if money had been borrowed. And, and I know we all get that, right? Everybody who's ever lived knows something about uh, owing money because either we owe it to someone else or someone owes it to us. It's like the investment banker that I, I read about earlier this week that decided uh, he wanted to retain an in-house counsel for his firm. And so he set up an interview with a promising young lawyer and he said to the young man in the interview, I just, I just want to ask you one question. Would you say that you're honest? The young lawyer said, oh, honest. Let me tell you something about honesty. My father lent me $85,000 toward my education, and I paid back every penny of it the minute I had my first case in court. And the banker said, wow, that's, that's impressive. Who did, who did you represent? And the, the lawyer said a little sheepishly, well, I, I represented myself because Dad sued me for the money. <laughs> but, but you see, because when, you know, when we're the ones in debt... When we're the ones in debt, mercy and patience and understanding are really appealing concepts, aren't they? Right? Uh, especially if we fall behind on a payment or two. But when someone owes us, on the other hand, those lovely concepts lose some of their luster, especially if someone owes us a whole lot. Uh, and that's when the idea of total fairness becomes much more appealing, because if we're honest, if we're really honest, we want justice when we've been injured, but mercy when we're the ones who've committed the offense. Right? Can we admit that together? Right? We, we want justice when we've been injured, but we want mercy when we're the ones who've committed the offense. And that's, that's really true. And one commentator wrote of that. He said, our clamor for justice is almost always skewed in our favor. Uh, but he says, where the light of the gospel shines, justice demands that we agree with God's assessment of our true condition. Since whenever we demand justice and lawfulness from others, we affirm the standard that also condemns us. Because, you see, we can't rightly ask God to uphold just part of his justice on earth, can we? Uh, to just enforce the part that, that, that suits me. But that's exactly what radicals from, from every stripe are doing right now, right? They, they think justice is piecemeal. Uh, then in their, their little cliques that we can somehow separate uh, the sins that we don't like from the ones that we don't mind. And worse yet, then they have permission to overreact with what they perceive are, are sins against their particular group, whatever group that they're a part of, and completely ignore the sins that they perpetrate against other people. Uh, and we're really seeing that run amok in our nation, aren't we? Right? I mean, in a day and age where people trip all over themselves to see who the biggest victim can be, uh, where people retreat into their respective corners and, and cry foul and demand their rights, but the message of our text today is what God owes to us if we want what's really fair and right, is his punitive justice. But instead of giving us what we deserve, uh, instead of giving us the punishment that we've earned, he gives us his compassionate mercy. And you see how different that is from the message of the modern world? Right? The world where uh, we aren't allowed to look at anyone uh, anymore and tell them what they're doing is wrong. We can't do that anymore. Because everything is just labeled the, the fault of the system instead of the problem of our own sin. Uh, and quite honestly, we've been doing that as a nation for about the last 50 years. And look where it's gotten us. And I don't really think it, uh, it all kicked off from bad motives. I think, you know, back in the 60s, and most of you are older than me, obviously, but I think people really intended to bring about real 
positive, lasting change in society. I think people really wanted uh, to see real justice and real equality for everyone, regardless of their race or, or their age or their background. As a country, we just went about it the wrong way uh, with the whole, you know, I, I'm okay and, and you're okay and, and if it feels good, do it movement. But, you know, the folks that did that forgot they were able to do that because they were standing on the shoulders of godly parents from the greatest generation who made a stable society. Now, not, not perfect people by any means, but people who knew about duty and, and honor and sacrifice and, more importantly, knew the importance of obedience to the laws of God and loyalty to Jesus Christ. Uh, but now we finally pretty much crashed that whole foundation, uh, and that's all been dismantled, and all we're left with is a politically correct kind of soppy sentimentalism that tells everyone that their own personal opinions are an adequate substitute for the absolute truth of God's word. And if you don't believe me, just flick on the television when you go home, right? And listen to some of the, the snowflakes and the loonies who have, uh, as Malcolm Muggeridge used to say, educated themselves into imbecility and, and who, who, who take their day-to-day -day emotions as a starting point for determining truth. You guys all have seen people like that. People... Uh, Robbie Zacharias wrote about this. He said, people who grab onto the finger of feeling and think they've gotten a hold of the fist of truth. Right? I love that visual. They grab onto the finger of feeling and think they've gotten a hold of the fist of truth. But he says, by thinking exclusively at the level of emotions, people are driven systematically further inward until their whole worldview revolves around their own personal passions and their dangerous self-absorption. Right? I wish everybody could hear that message. But see, in contrast, Psalm 99 tells us who makes the rules and who sets the standard. And folks, it's not us. Psalm 99 says, the Lord reigns, let the people tremble. All people, everywhere, from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. Because the truth is the idea of genuine justice should shake us to our knees. And then we can begin in individual, personal repentance. Uh, one that, that recognizes that that you're messed up and God knows I'm messed up. And we have all messed up our relationships with each other and with a holy God who, despite what we deserve, reaches out to us in mercy and teaches us what real love really looks like in the face of Jesus Christ and the compassion that he offers us in his nail-scarred hands. Uh, a compassion that looks completely past the color of our skin and into your heart and my heart, regardless of who we are, and he sees our sin there, and he makes a moral judgment based on his transcendent truth. And he looks at us and he says, no, that, that's wrong. What you're doing is wrong. You're, you're out of line. But then he's moved with compassion to the depths of his being to do something about it, even though it cost the life of his only son in the most horrendous act of injustice ever perpetrated on planet Earth where the innocent was sacrificed for the guilty, the righteous for the rebellious, the, the holy for the hell-bound, in the one place, the only place, where God's perfect righteousness and his relentless love for us meet and are reconciled. And that's at the cross of Calvary, where God's justice was perfectly administered and his mercy was publicly displayed, when God took upon himself the punishment meant for the guilty, for, for us, for me, so that sinful guilty human beings could be reconciled to him without one ounce of guilt being swept under the rug or one bit of justice unserved or one single drop of mercy wasted all because of what Jesus endured, endured 
for us. He endured for us to fulfill the toughness of God's love and the tenderness of his justice. Because you see, he's, he's the only thing. Jesus is the only thing that can bridge that huge chasm between those two extremes, and he did it by his death on the cross because that's where we see the unique revelation of the fullness of God's divine nature. Uh, one that we only hinted at this morning in the, uh, in the Psalm of the Old Testament, if you blinked, you missed it, in our text today in the transition from Psalm 98 to 99, where we read, He will judge the world with justice and the peoples with equity. And he says, The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Right? Like I say, blink, you missed it, right? And where does he do that? Where does he sit enthroned upon the cherubim? Where does that happen? It happens in the, the holiest spot, in the holiest place in the tabernacle at the mercy seat. The mercy seat hammered from a single piece of gold to serve as a lid for the Ark of the Covenant and God's throne on earth. Uh, and besides being the literal covering for the Ark, it also represented a covering for sin. Because once a year we read, uh, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the mercy seat with the blood of a spotless lamb. And then God, seeing the penalty for that sin, paid by the substitute of the innocent lamb's blood, forgave the people. But they did that year after year. But they did it looking ahead with faith that what they did symbolically the Messiah would accomplish actually and bring an end to all of the sin and death and guilt and craziness of this world and usher in an era of true justice tempered with God's mercy. And you know what? Their hopes came true. And I want to share with you just really quickly uh, how that happened from the writer of Hebrews. And if you're ever in the habit of underlining or circling things in your Bible, Hebrews chapter 10 uh, is a great explanation. The author says, The old system under the laws of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. For it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That's why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them, though they are required by the law of Moses. And then he said, look, I've come to do your will. And he cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once, just once, for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sin. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sin, good for all time. And then he says, I will never again remember their sins and their lawless deeds. And so, brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and living way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right in. I love that verse. Let us go right in, right into the presence of God with sincere hearts fully trusting in him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ to make us clean. And for us to, to be the physical, visible demonstration that, that God is just. He's justice, so he has to condemn our sins. But God is love, so he became a man in the person of Jesus who lived a perfect, 
sinless life that you and I couldn't do and goes to the cross where all of the, the justice and wrath of God that I deserve was thrown down on him instead for our redemption, for, for our covering so that, that our hearts and minds could be opened and we could actually hear and understand love and justice from the very heart of God's holiness. And with the psalmist today, we can sing to the Lord a new song because he has done marvelous things. The Lord has made known his salvation, his Yeshua, his Jesus. He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of all the nations, all of them, of every color and creed, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God and seen it perfectly in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ in whose name I say to you today, repent and believe the gospel. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this holy time and place. We thank you for the privilege of declaring and hearing the gospel of the mercy of your Son. And so, Father, I ask in this moment uh, that you would reach out to any here that don't know you as your Lord and Savior, that you would just surprise and astound them by the reality of your presence, uh, that you would open their hearts, Lord, as only you can do. Uh, I can only preach the word, Lord, but only you can open hearts. And so uh, we ask you, Lord, to take this humble message, use it to the glory of your name, and send it forth, Father, because you promised that when your word goes forward, it doesn't return to you empty, but accomplishes all of your purposes. And so we trust in that and ourselves in you. In Jesus' name, amen.